0: woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrive, he treats me like commodity. Just give me a stack on his inner connect. He wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. This guy is singing that old don't know value. Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about value in all of its permutations and to everybody involved. Today I am thrilled to have an old friend, Ole Lundquist, who's a professor of surgery uh at a Swedish hospital in the town of Urebro. How did I do on the pronunciation, Ole? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um uh, Ole is also the founder of or and and the former chairman of the ERAS Society. ERAS is an acronym, E R A S, that stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Ole, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. And so um,
0: I've you know I've I've married into ERAS, and so I kind of understand it. Uh, but why don't you kind of explain it for uh, people who don't understand? what ERAS is and what, what take it from an acronym to a real story. Okay.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, this is a, it's a project or a way of working with surgical patients that, uh, a group of us back in Europe about 20 years ago now, uh, decided to explore and the basis for, for the whole uh, way of, uh, working is that we started to review all the literature that we could find in, in, you know, in the medical journals uh, that would help us understand what we should be doing to help people recover as quickly as possible after major surgical procedures. And it turned out that we were able to find at that time about 20 different elements that had good solid evidence uh, to improve the outcomes of, of the patients. Now, we were Um, five groups from five different countries in Northern Europe. And when we looked at what the literature told us to do, we realized that none of us were doing it. So uh, we then set out to test whether the literature was actually going to give us better outcomes than the ones we had already. Uh, And so we set out with our differences in the starting points of what we were doing to try to merge to to what the literature told us to to do. And while we were doing that, we collected all the data uh, that we could find. We were quite meticulous about that actually, because we were all interested in, you know, the details of of these things. We were all in academic institutions and so forth. So so we put together a database uh, as we were moving towards the literature's best practice. And when we reviewed, what we, what we were actually doing with regard to those elements, we realized that, first of all, we were wrong about what we thought we were doing. In fact, all of us found that we were missing out on certain elements of care that we were certain we had in place. And the other way was also that certain things that we thought was going to be problematic actually worked quite well. So we realized not only well the second thing which was really important we got much better results. I mean we were we we reduced our complication rates by about um, uh, you know 25 30% even higher in some of the some of the places here as we were improving our care according to the guidelines. Um, and so uh, so two things were very obvious for us. One the literature could lead us the way. Secondly, in order to be able to perform good practice, we needed to audit. We needed to audit the processes behind the outcomes very carefully. And if we just stuck to what the literature told us to do, we were actually going to be able to improve outcomes quite a lot. So this is the basis for ERAS and the other thing which was very clear to us that there, there were a lot of elements out there. And the elements did not just um, were not just related to surgery, but to anesthesia and nursing and other things as well. So we realized you needed to have everybody on board that were involved in covering the patient's journey from start to finish. So uh so we, we realized we need to put together a, a multidisciplinary, multi-professional team. We needed to audit and we needed to find out what was actually going on in our own units. Yeah. And then move to better practice. Yeah. So so that's where we are. Yeah. Long story, but but basically that's the essence of it.
0: I, I think that's a great story. And so for those of you civilians listening, think of this as Uh, Ola, you said you you started with about 20, but let's call it two um, Uh dozen-ish. Small changes to how you take care of a patient, and it's pre, during, and post. So these changes can be anywhere pre, during, or post-surgery. And when you do these twenty two dozen dozen-ish small things, patients go home healthier, Mm -hmm. faster, feeling better, And with fewer complications.
1: Yeah, drastic changes, drastic changes.
0: And so 20 little things add up to a huge, huge difference. And what you thought was the the conventional wisdom, right? In in another one of my pursuits, I I rail against, this is the way we've always done it. This is conventional wisdom. And for men and women of science, doctors, you found out that you were... Overlooking advantages that the literature that's that scientific discovery had already put out there for you. Um that's so, absolutely
1: right.
0: Yeah. So I, I think there's up there's some personal lessons that we all get sucked into the way we've all always done it. And that's a bunch of small changes
1: can lead huge, huge, huge results. <laughs> let me let me just add one thing mark because this is important it's not it's not like every hospital needs to put in 20 some new items in their care agenda in fact most of the hospitals that we've been training over the years do about half of them already so it's it's more about finding out you know which ones are we missing and then add them to the agenda and make you know a few changes here and there yeah. Not very drastic, and it's very simple things, actually. It's about removing drains. It's about giving fluids in the right amounts. You know, simple, things that we're doing, but maybe not to the point and, and at the level that we should. And with the, with the um, persistence that every patient gets it every time, that kind of thing also comes into play.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, one of the examples that I like to use when I'm describing this to people is giving fluids. It yep. was conventional wisdom that before surgery, your your medical care team would load you up with three or four, you know, two or three bags of saline solution.
1: What we used to do was have patients fasted overnight before yep. surgery, so we would dry them up completely unnecessarily. We would also have them come in in a metabolic state. Their body was in a fasted state, which is not ideal if you're in for stress. I mean, nobody would go running a marathon after a 16-hour or 12-hour fast. You know, that's that just doesn't make sense. So, so instead of uh, overnight fasting, you should give a carbohydrate drink in the morning, a couple of hours before the operation. is perfectly safe because it will... Go through your stomach. There's no risk of of having any problems from that. The second thing that we learned was that it is actually mostly during the surgery that that patients were were given too much fluids. But I know that what you said that in some some anesthesiologists would like to have the patients sort of preloaded on top of things. So so, but but during surgery, usually patients would get about four to six liters of uh, excess fluids. And the, the way that the body responds to an injury is that you shut down the kidney so that you know, you don't you have to preserve whatever fluids you have in the body because you don't know when you're going to have a drink next if, if you're out in the forest or something is happening to you. So, so that way the body would assemble or you know keep a lot of fluids in many of the organs that can harbor more water. And that causes problems with getting you out of bed, being able to eat and have your, you know, uh, back to normalcy. So, so a lot of things actually you can change here yep. and you can so, do it for yeah. the better.
0: Yeah. And so take that little change mm-hmm. and multiply it by a couple dozen, um, getting a patient up sooner. Uh, Tonya tells the story of, um, the recovery room, the head nurse in the recovery room, um, going crazy when the nutritionist bought, brought one of her patients a tray of food in the recovery room mm-hmm. because it yeah. was conventional wisdom to not do that yeah. Yeah. and well it, it turns out that you can and not only that you should and so there was a training of the recovery you know you had to teach ERAS to the recovery room nurse yeah and, some, and you had to teach ERAS to the nutritionists who yeah. were, and so it's it's a, as you said Every specialty that touches the patient has to be taught something.
1: Absolutely. Everybody needs to be, uh, uh, you know, in understanding why we do these things. We reduce the stress. We keep uh, patients from starvation, which is uh, traditional care, and we don't drown them anymore. You know, (laughs) we keep them in fluid balance. And and so. But but every, every, who is on the team of treating these patients need to know what their specific role is in the bigger picture and that that makes it much more easy for everybody to comply with the program I think Mm -hmm. so it's about getting people involved and also feeding back the information we have from the audit that we do so that people see well we're doing things right and we're getting the results as well yeah and so a bunch
0: of a bunch of little changes. So there's this is the you know like the human organization, the organization full of humans, change mm-hmm. management, teaching yep. them here's what, here's why, yep. Yep. Uh, here and here's how, and here's the orders. And so there's there's a lot of that change. And here's kind of something I did want to talk about is that these results of adopting a successful relatively complete ERAS programs are pretty well apparent, but there was a change in and the, the benefits to the patient are crazy obvious. And there has been some difficult in different systems and uh, it has to do the economics of how care is paid for in different countries, Mm -hmm. I think, um, with getting people to say, hospitals and doctors to say, it's good for me too.
1: Yeah, well, I I think that, uh, you know, medicine and surgery is uh, very traditional. Surgeons are cautious to make changes. And I I hold the whole community is actually, um, you know, yeah, slow to drive change. uh, In general, that's, that's been one of the drawbacks of what we're doing. And at the same time, I think perhaps we've uh, reduced some of the uh risks of doing really crazy things from time to time I don't know but 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 that's the slow change is is not good for for the progression of surgery and anesthesia I think overall so um but the financial aspect is 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 also very important obviously because nowadays I don't think in any system you're going to be able to bring about any change if it's too costly. And if it doesn't, I mean, ideally you should actually uh, improve outcomes for patients, make your staff happier and feel better about their jobs and also save money at the same time. And incidentally, that's exactly what we can do with enhanced recovery programs. Um, you know, if we, if we take it step by step, you mentioned that the, the outcomes are fantastic for the patient Uh, There is, uh, you you know, for just about any major operation, there's now good data to prove that you reduce uh, recovery time, you have fewer complications. And we're talking in the vicinity of reducing complications between 25 and 50%. And that's actually true for most units that we've been training as well across the world. But it's also in the literature.
0: Yeah. Now, um, Complication rates. I mean, that's that's a real interesting example that has to that really interacts with how care is paid for. Um, yeah, there once upon a time were more systems than there are now, where the hospital actually got paid as much to treat a complication as it got to cause yeah. the complication, and yeah. so there, there's a preferred sense of set of of incentives. And you can imagine if you're a hospital and even though you you tell yourself you don't want complications and I'm a doctor, there is still a perverse incentive in the background that says we it doesn't pay as much to solve this problem. There are other problems that we we could address our energy toward that seem to have more obvious. Change the incentive system and suddenly, if the hospital has to pay for its own complications out of pocket, um, that that set of incentives does a U-turn.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it really matters which system you're in. Um, I mean, I Sweden has a national insurance system, so everybody gets care. Uh, and we, you know, there's no uh, uh, selection of patients whatsoever. Um, and the government in the end pays for it. Uh, but for sure, here, uh, the hospitals are still, uh, you know, they, they have to run their own finances, just the same. And what, what happens is that, of course, if you have fewer complications, um, you you actually save a lot of money for the hospital. It's very costly to have complications. A day in the ICU or a reoperation is is you know a lot more expensive than uh, many of the the primary operations to begin with. Yeah. So um, so you want to avoid them at any cost. The second thing is that complications for the patients is is dangerous. That's what kill people. You know that that's what re- kills them now. And actually, there's lots of data to suggest that even if you survive your complication. You know, in in the in the short term, your risk of dying early is much higher. Actually, yeah. So it's really bad for the patient. It is bad for the uh, the the the, um, the financing of the hospitals, and even in hospitals like in the U.S., where many private hospitals are, you know, getting paid by uh, per performance, and uh, like you mentioned, even if they got paid for. Uh, taking care of the complications in the past, I, I doubt that that was actually making money for them uh, in the end because it's much better to have patients run through it in your system, take them through the operation, uh, don't have to operate them again so you can use that operation space to to take on other cases that you can run through quicker. So so I, I think yeah. there's no system in the world that doesn't save money or make money from yeah. actually working this way.
0: Yeah, I remember working this through with an administrator uh, at a Mm -hmm. hospital system in Texas where we talked about the revenue for a surgical patient is much is it's at its highest on day one, on on surgery day. Mm. The day after surgery, that revenue for that patient goes down and each day it goes down. And so if you are through ARAS sending patients home earlier, you're knocking off those low revenue tails and you're clearing that bed for a day one patient that is higher revenue. And when we talked about that, we said of course this is on the assumption that your hospital is bed constrained. You don't have beds waiting around yeah. and and you and uh this administrator said well that's just about every hospital in the country and of course with covid now it's even worse. Every mm-hmm. hospital is bed constrained and you there's a there is it and that's easy to get a an administrator to say, yeah, that's right. But it's almost impossible to have an administrator think of that unguided. If you don't bring that to their attention, it's not something they're likely to figure out well, to do. That it's arithmetic, they're not likely to do without your without you suggesting they do it.
1: Yeah, well, um, I I think more and more people do get that connection here. And I think especially with the shortage of staff that we all have, not only in the US, but actually I hear that from almost around the world. I, I have a lot of connections internationally and I hear the same thing. After COVID, uh, there's been a lot of uh, hospitals that have lost a lot of staff. We're talking 20% of the staff may be gone, even higher in some places. And of course, that puts the pressure on, on the hospitals and uh, you, you need to make sure, not only that you you have your throughput, but you gotta make sure that the people you still have in your hospital working for you are happy with the, with the job that they're doing. And then you gotta realize that the incentive for these people, well, of course, they wanna be paid a reasonable amount of money, but actually what makes them go to work is that they they chose this job to take care and help other people. And if they feel that they can do a better job in helping their fellow men and women by giving them better care, they sleep better at night, they feel more happy about their work, and they're like more likely to stay on the job. So I think that that's another very, very important aspect of all of this. And I can still remember years ago when I was uh, head of department One of the hospitals here in Stockholm, I was walking home uh, around nine o'clock in the evening, and one of the nurses, uh, you know, walked beside me, and we were on our way to the subway. She came up to me and said, well, we don't often say these things to each other, but I want you to know that we're so happy that you started the ERS because we sleep better at night. We know our patients are feeling better. And, you know, that tells it all. You you know that um, you as a hospital manager and the leader of a department or whatever can make your people feel happy about their jobs, they will tell everybody else. And that's how you can help recruit more staff and have them come back and have them stay.
0: I want I mean, you you just guided me. You begged another question Uh, in all of the database that you keep and all the tracking. Have you or have you ever considered starting to track? Um, morale and job satisfaction scores; those are available. Um, yeah, and it would be that would be an interesting study to do a correlation of job satisfaction before yeah. and after ERAS.
1: Yeah, well, we we've had thoughts in this direction, but we we actually uh, had uh, an idea to look at staff turnover uh, as a measure of that or sick leave. You know that would be another way of looking at it more you know uh, objectively i guess well it's uh, i, I would say on.
0: not only objectively but that is the measure that yeah. any hospital administrator uh can see directly tied to yeah, yeah. yeah. Do- dollars krona euros yeah. or yen <laughs> <Exactly>. yeah yeah <laughs> so that's the most that is a very monetizable measure so i think that's mm-hmm. a great one
1: yeah yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you, you, I, I, I've been in this game long enough to know that you have to get your administrators on board to, yeah. to make anything work. And but it's, it, you know, I, I, I used to be in, uh, in charge of a big budget, and uh, but I never understood when people said it's too expensive because, you know, to me that was madness. It was always a great thing to do financially too, yeah, in many many aspects like we've been talking about.
0: Yeah. um, I, I've studied a lot of that. And of course, I help sales organization, organizations sell the kinds of things that there initially is no money for.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: so the, the exercise that I teach is get to the executive who decides who gets what budget and get to the executive to show them that you do need to move budget from A to B because yeah. this one is. And so there is money for that, but at a low to medium level in a lot of organizations, they don't know that there's money for that because they Mm -hmm. think the budgets are ironclad. Yeah. Um, And so there's no money for that is uh, kind of, that that was a saying that just reeks of mediocrity.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there could be, Other reasons as well that that people don't want to embark on this. Um, I think one of the things that we're up against nowadays is that everybody thinks they're actually doing it already. You know, uh, go back five, 10 years ago, it wasn't that well known. But now I think I don't, I haven't met a surgeon in many, many, well, at least the last five years that would say, no, no, I don't do any of this. I think it's rubbish. Everybody says they're doing it. But the matter of fact is that unless you can really show that you, uh, you have a system to track your your elements of care and know exactly what's going on and can show me that and your outcomes, and, you know, I'd like to uh, challenge you on, on that, actually. I, I know there are systems where it's working very well with their own kind of systems and, and everybody doesn't have to do what we do exactly, but the general principle needs to be there. Yeah. I, I think
0: um, bedside manner counts a lot when you say, you know, when, when you come to somebody who says, we already do that, but uh, bed, the way you say that's what, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, or <laughs> you want to bet, I mean, you, you, you have to find a and all uh, of you are the gentlemen who can do that so much better than I ever would be able to. Um, but it is a matter of politely calling their bluff and saying, "You believe it? Let's. How about we well, put that to the test?"
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we—it's uh, it, not altogether bad, you know. And I—I I have a lot of respect for for people out there you know trying to do it but we've been finding over and over again that well in fact most of the units that we that we are training and have been training over the years are the ones that have been embarking on it but they don't get down to the length of stays and the complication rates that that they were hoping for and then you know eventually people start coming to to us or some other program and and uh, you know uh ask us if we could have a conversation and then we start testing where they are and then they realize whoops you know it wasn't quite as good as we thought but then again it reveals what elements they need to work on for the first time and you know the other thing mark is that this is complex i mean it's not by coincidence that people don't have this kind of control we are organized in hospitals in, in silos. So you have these different departments, but also within the departments, everybody's so busy doing uh, their own little thing in the in the patient's journey that nobody has the overview. Yeah. And that's what we're giving them. And that helps a lot.
0: Yeah, I waved my hand a little too blithely at, earlier in this interview when I said, oh, it's just about two dozen really simple changes and it makes big differences for the patient. Well two dozen little changes to the hospital, to the organization is a huge change. So yes, there's huge benefits to the patient, but 20 little changes is one huge change.
1: Yeah, but again, Mark, you don't, normally that's, I I haven't seen any hospital that have to make all those changes and most of them, I would say 50% uh, compliance is not unusual that we see and then we get them up to about 70 or 80% and that's where they should be you shouldn't be doing everything all the time with every patient because there are medical exceptions that you should be making actually so so in the end if you're if you're up there in these 70s 80s you're doing quite well you have good results it it comes you know by itself yeah. so a lot
0: of what you're... you're challenge with ERAS has been the change management and getting hospitals and administrators to realize they aren't, to undertake the change. And, and a big part of the cost of ERAS isn't an investment in, I mean, there's there's an investment in the database, which is actually out of pocket, but the change, the, the big, the major cost is the Non-monetary change management cost. Yes, you could probably assign a, an F, a full-time equivalent of an administrative to, to track or, or a tracking nurse, but the, the real cost of changing those habits and, and of the coaching, thats it's hard to monetize, but that's the big challenge is the change management, I think.
1: Yeah, I, well, I mean, you need to set up a team. You, this, All of this obviously happens on the, on the bedside floor and in the operating rooms, you know. Yeah. So you need to anchor this inside the organization and you need to have local leaders that actually drive it. What we can offer is methodology to help them drive the change and make the changes and help them see what they're doing. But, you know, it's funny because we've, those people are always there. In just about every hospital, there are a lot of people who wanna drive change, who wanna get the opportunity to do something better. And and again, the driver here is that they see the outcomes coming, you know? And when it's so obvious when you have a patient instead of lying in bed, tubes and drains all over the place, feeling nauseous, not feeling very good. And then, you know, a couple of months later, same kind of patient is sitting up eating walking around the day of surgery, you know, so here you go. Yeah. Nobody sees it.
0: What a rewarding way to spend uh, a a career in medicine, (laughs) Ole. That's fantastic.
1: It's Um, been fantastic, really. Yeah.
0: If if people want to learn more about you or about ERAS, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Um, Well, they could uh, check out our website, erassociety.org. And uh, that would be the starting point Uh, if you, uh, you know, you're not so familiar with medicine. You can look at, I did a TED Talk some some years ago that explains the principles around this. Uh, And, uh, you know, on the website, you can find a lot of the medical information that you may need. Also gives you a lot of updates on new stuff that is, you know, because this is a moving target. We change things all the time. To make even more improvements, so so th- those would be the two places that I would look for. Great.
0: Well, thanks for spending time with sharing Eras uh, the value, how the challenges to getting that value to actually take place. Um, it's been a great great conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks. And thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the value clarity podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customers or your patients or your doctor's mind, which means that sales, marketing, business change management is a lot more like brain surgery than you may have thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because values in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blue.